I'd like to invite John now to come and read <coughs> the next part of Genesis for us this morning, Genesis 12, 10 to 20. Abraham in Egypt. Uh, Genesis 12, beginning verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. He was about to enter Egypt and said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? When, why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Thank you, John. Well, so far, in the few short verses we've looked at in our study of Abraham, his journey with God has been fairly spectacular. It began, of course, with a sudden call, a call that came seemingly out of the blue, from a God he'd never really heard of or sought to follow in any way. And by all accounts, it was a big call. It was something dramatic, something that caught his attention, because it was one that asked him to leave his home his father's household and his country, to go to another land, a new land, a strange land, a land that God would show him. And as part of this call, he was also promised various things, things that he didn't have in his present life and probably couldn't have as well. He was promised a family of his own. He was promised a position of authority. He was promised a role in the world. And he was promised a legacy that would be bigger than anything he could ever imagine. Because God, this God that he knew nothing about up to this point, seemed intent on blessing Abraham, so that Abraham in turn could be a blessing to the world. And so following this call and this promise, Abraham went. He left his home, he left his father's household, he left all that he knew, and he headed towards Canaan. And there God showed him this new land. In fact, he walked him round a little bit to show him the extent of it. And it wasn't a small land, and it wasn't an empty land. In fact, it was full of Canaanites, and it was massive. But despite this, Abraham believed the call of God upon his life and the promises that God had given him. And so he built altars, and he worshipped God the one who had called him out of nowhere into a new and exciting life. And it's fair to say that at this point, at that point when he built the altars, having left all that he knew for a new life and a new land, that Abraham was ready and raring to go. 
He was trusting God and he was believing God. He was all in. He was committed to this new way of being. He was the man of faith that we reflect on when we look in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament many, many years later. But then things started to happen. Namely, as John read a few moments ago, a famine that arrived in this land that Abraham had been brought to. And by all accounts, it was a severe famine. We don't know how long it had gone on for. We don't know how long it was projected to last. But we do know that it was severe enough for Abraham to be concerned for his own well-being and for that of his wife, Sarah. Severe enough for him to decide to leave this land that God had brought him to and to set off down to Egypt, where hopefully there would be water because there was the Nile which didn't very often dry up. And there was much less chance of famine taking hold in that area than there was where Abram was at the time. So Abram left this land, this land he'd been brought to, and he, taking Sarai, he made his way to what he thought was a far safer place. But as he got near to the land of Egypt, Abram began to realise that he would encounter a problem. The land of Egypt, of course, was ruled by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh at the time was like a god in that area to everyone else around. He had the power and the privilege to do what he liked. No one questioned him. It was his land and he ruled it. Surely he would notice Sarah and desire to have her as part of his possession. He'd get rid of Abraham, her husband, and he would take her for himself. After all, this was common practice for an Egyptian ruler, for rulers of that time. No one would stop him. No one would question him. No one would say, oh, I don't know whether that's quite right. In fact, they would act for him. They would go and do his deed for him. So Abram, sensing this danger and feeling there was no way of avoiding this, came up with a plan. It was a plan to save himself, in reality, so that he could continue to be the father of many nations, maybe. It involved a few lies, little bit of deception, Sarah and Abraham pretending to be brother and sister rather than husband and wife so that no one would be killed. But it seemed worth the risk. So Abraham persuaded Sarah to lie and Sarah was taken to Pharaoh while Abraham was treated well as her brother. He acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys and male servants and camels, male and female servants. In fact, a lot. He, he required, acquired possessions, things that made him very rich. And at that moment, famine and danger seemed to have been avoided. But at what cost? You know, a few years ago, when I lived in London, I had the... Um, well, I got to go to Wimbledon, tennis. Well, it wasn't actually like I got to go. I got to sleep on the pavement for, like, you know, seven hours. Before they had the whole organised sleeping area, you just got on the pavement in your queue and you you slept or you didn't really. So my friend and I, we thought, we'll do this. We're in London. How long are we going to be in London? We don't know. This is an opportunity to go to Wimbledon. Let's go and sleep on the pavement and see if we can get a ticket. Well, we were quite far back, even though we arrived at two o'clock in the morning, but we managed to get a ticket to number one court. Now, it was the old number one court, don't know whether anyone remembers, that had the really steep seating at the side and we were right at the top in the standing area couldn't really see a thing but we were so excited it's number one court who gets on number one court well a lot of people do but you know at the time we were thrilled and we were watching the tennis and it was great and then 
we noticed the scoreboard, and we noticed that actually centre court was a bit more exciting because Andre Agassi was on centre court, and we both really liked him. So we thought we'll just walk round and see, you know, if we can see anything. And so we walked past the entrances to centre court, and um, we walked up and looked through. And the the man on the door said, "Oh, are you are you in there?" And my friend went, yes, yes, we have seats in there. And I'm going, yeah, sure, yeah, we've got seats. So we could go, go through then. So we went in and we sat down in these empty seats. And you would have thought that'd be brilliant, wouldn't you? Centre court, Andre Agassi. But I was petrified because I was like, oh, I've just lied. I've just lied to the man on the door. And now I'm in centre court and someone's going to come and want their seats. And they're going to they're gonna go, this isn't your seat. This isn't their seats. They've lied. And so I was sitting there, and the whole time we were in there for about half an hour, I was absolutely petrified, and I didn't watch a point. I didn't enjoy Andre Agassi and his long hair and, you know, all that that everyone really liked at the time. And then we left, and I thought, that was an awful experience. It was terrible. And, you know, I'm sure we've all done something like that, haven't we? She tries to make herself feel better about lying. We've all, you know, um, said things or done things that have got us into situations or places that we really shouldn't be in or, you know, it's hard to get into. We've all sort of stretched the truth a little bit, even lied, a bit like Abraham and Sarah do here. We've all said things that are not quite right, pretended to be people that we really shouldn't. But the thing is, if I'd have got caught despite the fact that I thought I'd be arrested and they'd point me out on the big screen and everything, that wouldn't have happened. I'd just have been told to leave, and it would be a bit embarrassing for those who were around, but nothing else would have happened. It didn't really matter. Whereas here in the book of Genesis, what had started out as a plan to escape famine and live safely, with a few lies and a little bit of pretending had actually become quite a dangerous situation for Abram to be in. And more to the point, it was one he had no way of getting himself out of. Sarah, by all accounts, was now part of Pharaoh's harem. She was either a servant or a mistress or both. The Bible doesn't give detail, but there was no way she was coming back to Abram as his wife. There was no way that was going to happen. And Abraham had no way of getting her away from Pharaoh. He couldn't do that without losing everything, including most probably his life, because he had lied to this mighty man. Which is a bit of a turnaround for the one who is later referred to as the father of many nations. A bit of a come down from the one who God had called to be a blessing to the world. In fact, as we read this passage right here and now, it seems that actually Abraham has somehow lost his way. Only a few verses ago, he was building altars and worshipping God, following the one who had called him out of nowhere and promised to give him wonderful things. And now he's stuck, having put his wife in a terrible situation and himself surrounded by wealth, but in a life he wasn't called to live. A life that seemed to be bringing harm rather than the blessing that God had wanted. And it makes you wonder that having experienced God in such a dramatic way, having taken a leap of faith in following his call, having been all in for God, how on earth did Abraham end up like this? 
Did he make these decisions to leave Canaan, to enter Egypt in an attempt to save the promises of God when famine looked like it was going to be wiping them out? Did he lie about who he was and who Sarah was simply to protect his own life when it seemed to be slipping away? Or was it simply that having received the call of God upon his life, having experienced the wonder of a God who called him by name, and gave him a future, that suddenly life had started to happen. Things had become a bit complicated. Suddenly things had pressed in on him. And Abraham simply didn't know how to continue trusting God when life had become a lot harder. Most of you will know here that during my sabbatical, Simon and I went to Rome. I made a huge deal about it beforehand, so you should know. We did eventually go, and it was wonderful. But one of the best bits, well, actually, there was a lot of best bits, but one of the really good bits was as we flew into Rome, I don't fly very often, so this might be the norm when you fly, but we flew over Rome to land in the airport. And as we flew over Rome and we looked out the window, it was amazing because we could see all of Rome laid out before us, like a miniature map. You know, like you have those miniature models in Legoland or wherever. And we could see the Vatican. And we could see St. Peter's, like a mini version. And then we could see all the roads coming in to a central point with all the houses built up in the city. And we could see the Colosseum, that looked like a mini Colosseum, and all the ruins. And it was all there. And the sun was shining, and it was amazing. And we were like, wow, this is just wonderful. This is just brilliant. This is going to be so great. And then we landed, and the plane had been delayed a bit, so we were a little bit hungry, but we had to get our bus, so we came out and we got on this bus, and and I don't know whether Simon noticed this, but the bus was a bit smelly, it smelt a little bit, and I was a bit hungry, and we had no food, and I was eating the end of an apple core that I'd started on the plane, it really wasn't appetising, and we got stuck in rush hour traffic, and we were travelling through the industrial area to get to the centre, And the bus stopped, and we ended up in the bus station, in the middle of Rome. We didn't know where we were supposed to go. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what buses did what. In fact, we didn't even know how to get a ticket to get on the bus at the time. We didn't even know you had to have a ticket to get on the bus. Soon worked it out. And the contrast between coming in on the plane and seeing this laid out before us and then entering the reality of a busy, bustling city, being slightly nervous, a little bit fearful, because I didn't really know where we were going, what was happening. It was amazing to go from that wonderful high to then be like, oh, we're just in a city at the moment, and we just really need to find our way. And I felt a bit nervous about it all. It did, it was all brilliant, by the way, once got past the, that bit. But it was very different. And, you know, when we follow God, we can find that there are times, just like Abraham, when we feel the call of God upon our lives, it's clear, sometimes it's dramatic, and it's as if everything is laid before us, like when we were flying into Rome, in a panorama, and it looks wonderful. And life is in focus, and we think, yes, this is brilliant, and we can't help but follow God, because finally we found the one who has called us. We build our altars and we offer our lives and we come and worship just like Abraham did. And then we get to those times when, just like Abraham, life happens to us. 
Life presses in. Maybe something difficult knocks us sideways. Maybe we become distracted by something enticing. Maybe the pressure of needing to meet targets and succeed is, it takes its toll on us. Life happens. Famine hits, if you like. Difficulty arrives. And we find that instead of being able to see all that God has given us, laid out before us, All we can see is what life is throwing at us. We find ourselves in the bus station, if you like, where decisions need to be made, where choices need to happen, and where we're struggling to know how to trust God in the situations that we're in. And like Abraham, we're often guided by our fears or our ambitions. We begin to think that life's all down to us, that it's all about what we do, that we're the only ones who care and we have to make the decisions. And that somehow we've got to make it through on our own. And sometimes when we do this, this works. We succeed and we think, oh, brilliant, made it through that, that's okay. But often, just like Abraham, it doesn't. And we can have that nagging feeling that we're living a life that we were not called to live. A life that we feel seems to bring harm rather than blessing. And, you know, that's why this passage and passages like this are so important because the interesting thing about this passage in the book of Genesis is that despite all that Abraham does, the poor decisions he makes and and the lies that he tells, despite his fall from grace, if you like, there are no judgments upon him. The author never passes judgment on Abraham's decisions and his subsequent difficulties, and God doesn't either. You see, it seems this passage is not as much about Abraham's disbelief and his failure as it is about God and his belief and his trust in this man. Because instead of judging Abraham, instead of giving up on this one person and choosing someone else, God reaches out to him, albeit in a rather dramatic and very disturbing way by inflicting disease upon Pharaoh and his household. Because, you see, God sees Abraham in trouble. He recognises that Abraham is struggling. He recognises that he can't trust those promises he was given, and so he reaches out. He reaches out and he gets him out of the situation and he enables him to stumble on in his now stuttering walk with God. And, you know, I love this. Not the inflicting of disease, which I find really hard to understand and quite difficult to come to terms with, but the act of God shown in this passage. Because God rescuing Sarah and Abraham from their dilemma show for me what we so easily in the difficulties of our lives forget. That actually the burden of belief and trust is just as much on God as it is on us. And what's more, that God trusts us with his call enough to continue to back us in living it out. Even when we make the most terrible decisions or find ourselves in the deepest holes. You see, God didn't leave Abraham to stew in his problems forever and he didn't leave Sarah to face the full consequences of their decisions. He didn't judge them for their lack of faith. Instead, he reached out and he showed that the call upon Abraham's life wasn't all down to how good Abraham was at trusting God, but actually it was all about how good God was at trusting Abraham. Showing that whatever happens, God never gives up 
Whatever happens, he never wavers. Whatever happens, he never turns his back as we struggle to work life out. Sometimes it seems that way. Sometimes it seems that God has gone, that he's not listening, that he doesn't care. It does, we think that. And I'm sure Abraham may have thought that too. But we would do good to remember that even though life happens and even though we struggle to trust God when we know we should... It doesn't matter because life with God is not dependent on whether we always trust and always do the right thing. If it were, Abraham would not be mentioned in the New Testament, let alone held up as this man of great faith. No, life with God is about knowing there is one who believes in us far more than we believe in ourselves. There's one who holds the burden of trust so that whatever our situation whatever it is we face in life whatever our failings we can continue we can continue to stumble on we can continue in our stuttering walk and we can be a blessing to the world let's pause for a moment as we think about what God has said to us this morning